Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Brady Heberlin. Today's show is Out in the Cold, the Political Imaginary of the Unhomed in the Great Depression. We open the show today with Lottie Kimbrough's Rolling Log Blues, recorded in Richmond, Indiana in 1928. Today, workers in the United States are out of work. After the market freefall this spring, crowded lines at food banks replaced crowded sports arenas. All industries contracted. Businesses of all sizes floundered. More than 20 million people lost their jobs in April alone, and 6.6 million unemployment claims were filed. In three months, we lost all of the jobs added to the labor market since 2008. The anticipated second wave of coronavirus will determine whether we retain the unexpected addition of 2.5 million jobs in May. The threat of another Great Depression looms. Like a log, the coronavirus shutdown saved lives. According to one study, the quarantine measures prevented about 60 million infections in the United States. Another estimate states that if we kept up social distancing measures and economic shutdown until the peak infection rate, we could limit infections and prevent as many as 600,000 additional U.S. deaths. That said, all 50 states have begun easing quarantine restrictions. Emergency rooms are bracing for a spike in cases. The economic shutdown was successful in blunting the spread of the coronavirus, but it brought along the worst financial crisis since the 1930s, a decade defined by the major global economic trauma of the 20th century and the benchmark against which all other recessions are measured. The unemployment rate remains historically high. A second stimulus bill may or may not pass. For many Americans, the New Deal, launched by President Franklin D. Roosevelt from 1933 to 1939, is the gold standard for how the government should respond to a national emergency. The New Deal funded immediate relief and jobs and constructed a social safety net which included a national retirement system, unemployment insurance, disability benefits, minimum wages and maximum hours, public housing, mortgage protection, and the right to collective bargaining. These programs, though rife with limitations, were the direct results of political protest and agitation by those deprived of basic necessities by a contracted and fundamentally unequal economy. We focus this week on the resistance movements of the underclass during the Great Depression, a historical era of economic crisis that increasingly resembles the present. For today's show, episode producer Bella Bravo speaks with Cody St. Clair, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of English at Indiana University, about the political imaginary of the homeless and unemployed during the Great Depression. St. Clair recently completed their dissertation titled Homeless Modernisms, Aesthetics and Politics of the Underclass. Cody St. Clair has studied how those squeezed out of the labor market and out of their homes gathered collective strength and pushed back. As protests over the killing of George Floyd have taken over the streets of every major city, have converted hotels to homeless shelters and best friends into bail fund organizers, we must consider how the lessons of the Great Depression apply to our own moment. We must learn from the political imagination of the underclass. I've been rolling and drifting from with Cody St. Clair on Interchange on WFHB. I actually started thinking about this particular project of, of homelessness in the early 20th century when I read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and then H.T. Singh's The Hanging on Union Square. 
they both have these very similar scenes of representation of, of evictions, but then of a community coming together and resisting the family's eviction. And actually, as a community, as a public, taking the family's furniture back in to the apartment from which they were dispossessed and forcibly making their way through the the police and the movers who who were sent to the to evict the family and so there are these very dramatic scenes where the main characters of both of these novels become radicalized through seeing a family evicted and then recognizing the injustice of that eviction the violence the very public violence of that eviction recognizing its injustice and then um, as a community, this person joining that community and gathering to um, to put the family back inside of their home. So it was sort of reading both of those novels and, and, and reading these scenes of eviction that got me very interested in thinking about um, the way that homelessness was represented in the early 20th century, um, and particularly in the Depression. So, I mean, both H.T. Um, Singh's novel, The Hanging Union Square, was written in 1935, Ellison's novel was not written until, or not published until the 50s, um, but it was, it's set in the Depression. So it just got me, from there, I just started doing research into um, eviction and to representation of homelessness in the U.S. Um, and it opened up this very large archive, um, 20th century, late 19th century archive, as well as a particular archive of the 1930s. I really appreciate the scope of your project focuses on works uh, written by homeless or or from the underclass. There are works that that represent those. It's really it feels like um, uh, the proletariat uh, or people who are pushed outside of waged work um, speaking themselves about their lives. And I haven't read very many uh, collections of research that that do that. So I really think that you've made an incredible archive. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you as I was reading through the sections that you sent me was uh, where you sourced your material. A lot of it's from archives. Um, so the chapter that you read, which is my third chapter on homeless women and uh, female assigned persons, that chapter is probably one of my most archival ones. Um, so I came across uh, Margaret Porter, who is one of the, the key figures that I write about in that chapter, through a, a short history that was written in the 70s by J.R. Roberts, who um, was a lesbian historian and wanted to um, find out about the history of, of not just women hobos, but particularly were there lesbians among women ho hobos in mm. the, the 20s and 30s. And so she has this, this article that she wrote for Dyke Magazine in 1972, I believe. Um, and it goes through the history of women and homelessness as she sort of understands it, and then begins, begins to try to find texts of her own. And she goes through some of the ones that I talk about, uh, one of the most famous being Ben Reitman's uh, Sister of the Road, which actually isn't an autobiography. Um, it was thought of as, as an autobiography, but it wasn't. Um, and then at the end of that piece, she mentions having done an interview with this woman, Margaret Porter, who wrote um, several, who went on, who um, after college, she was unemployed. And so went on the road for several months and she kept a diary of um, a journal travel log and so I just looked up Margaret Porter, tried to find stuff about her, and yeah. lo and behold, 
the Kinsey Institute had her um, archive. So I went to the Kinsey and was able to access um, this this travel log that she wrote um, called My Vagabondage, and then um, her poems that she wrote in the 30s. So uh, the Kinsey was one of the sources. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo speaks with Cody St. Clair, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of English at Indiana University on homelessness and resistance during the Great Depression. And when I woke up this morning, my truck was setting out a door. A lot of the other texts that I write about actually were, were published in the 30s. They were novels. Uh, that were published and did get some attention. So I've already mentioned H.T. Singh's The Hanging Hanging on Union Square. That was self-published by him in 1935, and it's Mm. been reprinted a couple times now. Um, He's getting more attention, um, particularly by um, Asian-American scholars, Asian-American studies. Um, So his work is becoming um, more prominent. Um, Let's see here. And a lot of the other stuff is actually from small literary magazines or even big literary magazines at the time. So a lot Mm -hmm. of my sources are called from the um, leftist CPUSA um, uh, magazine, The New Masses. Um, And they, yeah. So a lot of stuff comes from from that magazine as well as uh, The Daily Worker, which was the the big um, communist daily newspaper in the 20s and 30s and actually beyond that. Um, There was a literary magazine that came out called The Partisan Review. Um, and this was a very modernist proletarian magazine uh, that started in 1934 by another author that I write about in my second chapter called, his name is Philip Rav. Um, he wrote a poem um, called Homeless But Not Motherless. He, mm. he was a Russian immigrant and um, from 1929 to about 1931, 32, he was homeless and um, he becomes housed and employed again through the Communist Party when he joins in 1933. So I found his writing uh, in the Partisan Review. He was also the editor of the Partisan Review. Um, and then, yeah, just for the most part, it's it's novels and short stories that have just since you know fallen out of out of print, haven't been read, haven't been thought about much lately, but were nevertheless printed in the 30s by by big presses um, and even by by big publishers and editors. Um, so like I talk about Polly Murray in my third chapter, who is receiving, um, a lot of renewed attention lately, particularly in gender studies, um, because they are likely probably one of the first, um, known cases of somebody who is an African-American female assigned person to voice, um, their sense of a transgender identity as mm-hmm. early as the 1930s. And they published their first story that I talk about 3000 miles on a dime in 10 days in this massive, anthology that um, Nancy Cunard wrote up, um, put together called Negro. And again, that anthology was was quite groundbreaking in the 30s. Uh, it was finally published in 1934. But for the most part, it has you know gone out of print. It was reprinted in the 80s. But for the most part, people don't read it anymore. So it was mainly turning to these, these, these old sources. Um, and, and yeah, through through reading the the scholarship that people have written on, on the 1930s and just trying to sift through their their footnotes, their their bibliographies, um, and just sort of following following these trails in the, the literary publications and the, the magazines of the 1930s. 
It's time for our first break. This is Pick Poor Robin Clean by L.V. Thomas and Gishi Wiley. Stay with us for more with Cody St. Clair when Interchange returns. Pick Poor Robin Clean, Lord, in that day, Work me for Robin Clean, then I'll be satisfied having a family. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Out in the Cold, the political imaginary of the unhomed in the Great Depression with IUPHD candidate Cody St. Clair. In this segment, episode producer Bella Bravo talks with Cody St. Clair about the public and violent nature of evictions, which on some occasions include police brutality and even open firing by police on crowds of protesters. We'll also hear St. Clair discuss the gendered and racial dimensions of evictions and the phenomenon of ungendering. By publicly removing women from their homes, they are stripped of the material element that connects them to family life, the domestic sphere, and access to social womanhood, an experience that echoes the treatment of enslaved black women. One of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you was because we're going through a moment right now that a lot of analysts are seeing the closest parallel to the 1930s. The idea that you've collected all of these stories about how people live in the Depression era um, and are viewing what all of these different lenses, looking at class, looking at gender, and looking at race and how intersectionality was so crucial to how people engaged politically and also um, how they understood themselves and and lived. I just thought it was a really impressive project. Uh, You start the chapter on um, disgendered homeless women's bodies and futures in the 1930s by talking about the 1931 protest of Rose Warwick's eviction from her Southside apartment. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what that eviction was like um, and why uh, you put this uh, at the beginning, why you open um, this section uh, with that moment in history. So I actually talk a little bit about this protest in my first chapter, which I didn't uh, which you didn't read. So that's why it, I sort of assume some some knowledge of it just because I talk about it in a previous chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. No worries. <laughs> so by 1931, so the summer of 1931, 
there was this wave of eviction protests that sort of swept across the country. And it really did sort of going from from New York, um, New York and Baltimore um, to Chicago, even in cases, some cases in Kentucky and St. Louis, and then all the way out to California, this, this wave of eviction protests. And so this case of Rose Warwick being evicted uh, from an apartment in the, in the south side of Chicago, uh, it was the biggest eviction protest that happened in the, the summer of 1931 in Chicago. So Rose Warwick was served with an eviction. Um, she lived with her elderly mother. And as far as what the, the newsprint um, has told me, um, her, her mother was out of work. Her mother was uh, too elderly to work. So she, she was uh, the primary caregiver for her mother and Warwick herself was also um, unemployed. And so she served with this eviction notice. And this has just been happening across the south side of Chicago throughout this summer. And um, from what the, the Daily Worker was covering these evictions that were happening during the summer, and and they repeatedly noted that there were these landlord organizations that were getting together and were demanding that the police um, carry out all of the evictions that were approved by by judges, um, and that they had to do it. They had to remove them, and the landlords were were demanding that if if even if it has to be forcible and violent, that the police do it. And um, the the police, in fact, were doing this. So they they were violently evicting people from their apartments. Um, from their tenements, from their flats, whatever they had. And so in this particular case, um, the unemployed councils, which were a communist party um, appendage that particularly were, were focused on, um, on organizing the unemployed, they, they had this tactic where they would, um, they would gather around all of their ranks um, in the in particularly the the Chicago Communist Party and whenever they were notified of an eviction they would go to the site of the eviction and not just protest it but usually try to stop it by preventing furniture from being removed or if it was removed um, by breaking chains and locks and putting people's furniture back inside of their apartments wow. um, yeah and so in this particular case um, they started doing it and um, the and what happened was eventually about 50, at least 1500 people um and there's even reports that up to 5000 people eventually came and protested the police um because as oh. the protesters grew they the police eventually started firing at the the crowd and actually killed three people oh my god uh, yeah so this became um one of the, the this rallying cry around um, not just anti-eviction, but a, around just the the kinds of police brutality against the working class, particularly about against mm -hmm. the black working class, and the Communist Party in Chicago really tried to um, show people the the relationships between protecting housing and protecting labor rights. So they they connected mm -hmm. this to to the arrests and trials of the Scottsboro Boys, for mm -hmm. um, happening the same year, um, and they also connected this to um, to the violence committed against uh, strikers and far uh, striking farmers um, in the South. Mm -hmm. So it, it really sort of became to, to, to represent not just the brutality of eviction itself, but the brutality of the way that eviction is carried out and the form of public violence that eviction um, comes to comes to enact against a community, comes to execute against a community and not just the individual who's being evicted. Um, so mm -hmm. it was just, it's just really the poignant uh, example of of just how how cruel eviction was in the depression and then the forms the the, the very contradictions 
um, that capitalism produces um, in, in those relationships between um, between being housed and protecting housing and then um, um, being labor, being employed and waged um, uh, under capitalism. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo speaks with Cody St. Clair, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of English at Indiana University, on homelessness and resistance during the Great Depression. And when I woke up this morning, my tub was setting out a door. In your work, you uh, point out that um, this was Chicago's largest eviction, um, and the way that the... Chicago Communist Party, um, and then Anne Petrie um, in her novel, The Street, how they talk about this is um, uh, it's a it's a spectacle of public violence. And and what really seems um, so uh, you have this very interesting turn um, in your work um, where you say Warwick's eviction reveals the state mechanisms and property relations through which black women's bodies were continually ungendered. And then you quote uh, Hortense Spillers, um, the unprotected female flesh. Um, and you say that the city jettisoned her from her house and her home. Um, this function of, of ungendering, or I think the term that you develop, um, disgender. Could you explain what that is and uh, talk about how it relates to uh, evictions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm taking uh, Spiller's notion of ungendered and I'm revising it slightly, though for the most part, I really can't. I have to give her most of the credit. Um, because her term does really take into account what I'm looking at, but she's very much looking at um, the Middle Passage and slavery and um, how those social mechanisms come to what she she calls ungendered, to ungender um, women's bodies, Black women, female-assigned women's bodies, and how the quote I include later about how the kinds of violence that are enacted against women under slavery um, we think of as the kind of brutality that is enacted by men against other men. Mm-hmm. So Spillers has this this conception, a conception that a lot of um, feminists today may may challenge in some way. But but Spillers really thinks of the idea of of the woman as coming to existence, particularly under um, both, I mean, capitalism writ largely, but also under racial capitalism through domesticity, through the idea of a home and home care and homework. And that that is how a woman comes into being in, in social relations is through um, a particular kind of embodiment in its relationship to, to the domestic. And obviously mm-hmm. for black women slaves, right? A lot of whom were, I mean, were employed in the domestic space, others were not. And she thinks about how, um, how that in itself um, is a kind of ungendering of of their bodies in the sense that the the gender that they have or assigned is is wholly different than than their their white female owners. She thinks mm-hmm. about how um, even white the white women who owned who owned black women were allowed to violate their bodies in a way that was similar to the to the way that their male um, owners would violate them. Um, she talks about the ways in which the the slave woman um, the way that her body reproduces 
is not the way that reproduction between um, heterosexual white men and women was thought of, right? The reproduction that she was doing was not not for her sake, not for um, not for the creation of family and kin, but was right the creation of property for the slave owners. So even right. the idea of reproduction um, for her is not the reproduction that we think of as being uh, the reproduction of white womanhood. So there's all these different ways in which, for Spillers, um, um, slavery, racial capitalism exclude female blacks, female assigned persons from the category of womanhood. And so I apply this to the idea of eviction, um, and into the idea of into the the well the mechanisms and um, conditions of eviction and homelessness, in in the sense that. Um, and I give the example of uh, Memphis Minnie Douglas's blue song, Out of the Cold, the ways in which the eviction is the removal of a woman from the home, um, mm-hmm. uh, from, from the ways in which we think of home as being not just where the family is, but as a way of, of developing some kind of sense of self-determination, of security, of protection, of sanctity, it's obviously where, where re- reproductive labor for capital takes place. So mm-hmm. the idea of being able to evict somebody from that space, uh, particularly the ways in which Black women were, were violently evicted from the home in Warwick's case, um, comes to represent their bodies as being unworthy of, of the home, unworthy of domesticity, right? They're, they're unworthy of those protections that would probably have been assigned to, to white women who may have been defaulting on their... Um, their mortgages in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So I think about that in, in that case, that, that kind of the ways in which the removal from the home um, is, is, this, is this pushing out of the, of the Black woman from both the home as a space, but also the home as, as, her, rela- as her material relation to social womanhood. And then with homelessness, this goes, and then after eviction, you have the condition of homelessness. Um, and so in Douglas's song, she talks about how um, she's in the cold, trying to find a place, but nobody will open up the door for her, but her body is, her body's freezing, right? She can no longer feel her feet. Um, so she's been sort of reduced to, to her body, um, to, her, to her flesh, um, to a kind of ungendered flesh that people don't recognize as, again, deserving the protections that we think or we would like to say that we, we provide to female assigned persons, persons who identify as women. So my idea of disgender takes that into consideration. But at the same time, it also thinks about the ways in which how homelessness and eviction are not just ungendering, but they are utterly gendering in the sense mm-hmm. that a woman who is excluded from the home and is homeless is not only seen as being less than a woman or not a woman, but then she has to, in order to get help, re-enter herself or, or re-immerse herself into the, the logics of femininity and particularly a domestic femininity in order to get help from, uh, from the state, right? So she has, to, she has to prove herself to be sort of utterly hopeless, right, without the home. Um, she has to go particularly to the Women's Unemployment Bureau, which is separate from the Men's Unemployment Bureau. And mm-hmm. Mary de Lassure, whom I talk about later in the chapter, looks at that very carefully. And that there's a particular kind of violence in which the, the homeless woman faces that both says she doesn't deserve protection as a woman, but then also in order to receive any kind of aid, any kind of protection for the state, must then prove that she is a woman to the state. So it's it's this, this double-edged sword of being both ungendered and utterly gendered at the same time. And they both represent 
um, slightly different, but also at the same time, coterminous violences that we see in in the material lives of, of homeless women in the 1930s. I dreamt a dream last night I never dreamt before It's time for another break. This is Out in the Cold by Memphis Minnie. I never dreamt before Stay with us for more with Cody St. Clair when Interchange returns. And when I woke up this morning My tug was setting out a door No money. I couldn't find me no place to go. I didn't have no money. Couldn't find me no place to go. So they left me in my trunk. They're not in the cold. That was me last night. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We've been talking with IU PhD candidate Cody St. Clair about his book, Out in the Cold, The Political Imaginary of the Unhomed in the Great Depression. In this segment, St. Clair talks about the ways in which homeless people resisted the conditions that left them destitute. While labor strikes were the major focus of left-wing organizations and publications during the 1930s, we'll hear about how homeless people have found ways to strike against the injustices of everyday life and also displayed incredible solidarity with those who still had housing, organizing rent strikes and defending against evictions. I've been to many houses morning and won't nobody open this door. You set up in your introduction um, an understanding of how necropolitics functions as this slow death. So it's not uh, the social relations um, that create the way that we all live together uh, in society are created by property relations. And for some people, as you've said, that that means, you know, they get they live in an apartment, they have a certain place in a household. And of course, you point out in the introduction that um, that also means that they're, uh, for many people, they're excluded from those spaces. Um, and that manifests as a slow, a slow death. And I wanted to turn to um, the, the section where you talk about the Employment Bureau, in part because um, they're because you have this very clear assessment of how 
um, these social apparatuses um, function in the 1930s. Um, and then there's obviously that they're breaking down because it's the Great Depression. And so I was wondering, what did you learn from these breadlines and and the Losers section? And what was the what was the most interesting or most generative part of that for you? Um, so I I think a couple different things there. So I think one thing is, and this is what it, this was my main argument with the Sur um, in the the Communist Party at the time, particularly in the some of the, the the bigger magazines like the New Masses. There there was this desire not to represent um, unemployed women this way, and there's a there's another magazine that I don't talk about in, in much detail called the Working Woman. Um, that the I, as I explained, the New Masses editors. You know, said you know they like put this addendum at the end of of Lister's, uh, Women on the Breadlines and said you know this is a defeatist article, um, and we don't usually publish stuff like this, but we are right now. But readers, we recommend you go read the Working Woman, and when you go read the Working wo- Working Woman, there's this there's a very different approach to the way they represent homelessness. Um, mm. They they really don't like to represent the details of it. They will sort of say you know they're women living on the streets. Um, but they rarely do the kind of detailed lyrical description that Lister gives um, in the ways in which the women feel their bodies breaking down. So the Communist mm-hmm. Party really didn't want, particularly they didn't want to see, they wouldn't want women to be represented this way. And I, I should know, when I say Communist Party, I, I, I don't want that to sound monolithic in the sense that there was a Communist Party, um, there's one leader of the Communist Party saying not to do this, but there were communist affiliates um, like the writers, uh, the editors of the new masses who mm-hmm. didn't like this kind of representation of women. And then you see it reiterated in The Working Woman. And yeah. that Lassure decides to represent women this way um, and to to show just how, how beaten they feel. Um, I thought was very interesting in the sense that she defied, she defied those representations, that those representational mandates. Um, and that what she did was something much more than just going against um, a notion of revolutionary optimism that the that some of the party leaders wanted to see out of out of their writers. But she did something different. But through that, in my analysis, she she's sort of creating a basis for how for how revolutionary kinship and how comradeship um, come to be created among people who have been stripped of absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, you know, she, this is sort of, I mean, Lassure is, is somewhat an interesting figure. She's, she's not completely anti-statist, but she does sort of see, and she's not fully anti-New Deal, but she does see the New Deal mechanisms as, as, as really not helping out the women that she sees. I mean, they, they were, she sees the New Deal and particularly it's, it's, it's housing relief as helping women who already have families and particularly who mm. are married husbands, but for single women, she doesn't see this happening um, mm. for young single women. And even for single mothers, she doesn't see this happening. So she's, she's not ready to, to, to champion the new deal. She's not ready to champion um, what the state is trying to do to, to alleviate um, depression, poverty, but at the same time, um, she sees that the, she sees the very the very means or the very sort of ground zero point zero um, degree of, of of sort of the mechanisms um, or the conditions for um, political consciousness and and kinship between these women. So mm-hmm. that's what I that's what I really liked about 
about her work and why I turned to her later. Um, Cause it, it, it moves away from a lot of the mandates at the time for how to represent poverty, um, but does so that actually, in my opinion, reconforms with those mandates in a very innovative way. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo speaks with Cody St. Clair, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of English at Indiana University on homelessness and resistance during the Great Depression. And when I woke up this morning, my truck was setting out a door. Yeah, you have this great uh, section from her. Um, and so I and I just want to read it because I think it's um, it's so helpful and pointing to this this how she breaks through this tension that you're describing between revolutionary optimism um, versus like some sort of uh, defeatism. You say that uh, for Lesur, this depressive mentality opens up the possibility for alternative non-dominant relations between these women and herself, a relation which she compares to the collective intersubjectivity of a strike. And then you quote Lesur, they were on strike. They aren't going to have anything to do with it. They don't like the terms, so they aren't having any of it. Um, and, I, and I think that that's so beautiful because it, it crosses uh, across class. Obviously, she's not a, a part of this, this underclass um, that she's she's working with or or that she's observing um but she does feel still feel connected to them and so i was wondering what um what what did strikes or these these sorts of stoppage uh actions look like uh from the homeless in the 1930s so the in this particular the case um Lesur is is thinking about the the idea of a strike um in just the everyday the everyday life of homeless women and particularly in the things they have to do in order in order to survive. So mm-hmm. in right before this, she's talking about um, women, homeless women's withholding of, of sex from men mm-hmm. because they, they don't have access to abortions um, and the abortions they do have access to will likely kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's talking about, um, this, this, some of these young women that she finds who say that they are, they're no longer having sex with men because if they do, they're, you know, they're going to become pregnant and then, um, they, you know, they either have the baby that they can't take care of, um, that the state won't allow them to care of, or they might be sterilized in the case, um, that Lister talks about in her novel, The Girl, where um, her, her, um, protagonist is is going to be st- the the state plans to sterilize her after she gives birth to her child, um, and probably yeah. have the child taken away from her as well. Um, so she really thinks about and, and she's really thinking about um, how how this is similar. The, the kind of withholding of this case in terms of sex is then similar to um, in in the novel the girl that she writes about, which is the women protesting for for milk and iron pills um, so that they can nourish their children. So there's both the strike, which is um, for for the homeless. Um, it's it's for those homeless who are maybe still employed, they potentially could strike, but there weren't a lot of homeless strikes from labor. Mm-hmm. Um, in in this case, there were. It was more um, protests, homeless protests. So mm-hmm. um, as I talked about before, the unemployed councils, um, the regular protests 
um, <clears throat> you have regular protests for for um, unemployment insurance, right? And that eventually produces Social Security insurance from the New Deal. Um, so that was one of the big ones. Uh, but you also had um, homeless organizations, particularly the unemployed councils, that um, that were that that advocated for rent strikes in in buildings, and particularly um, in tenements in New York and Chicago. So the idea of, of withholding your rent to your landlord. Um, in many cases, these were done um, because the not only because the tenants often couldn't pay their rent, but the tenants, as a collective, went to their landlord and and asked for a restructuring of the rent, but the landlord refused, and then um, would you know attempted to serve them all with evictions. So then the tenants would together gather. Um, they would all protest uh, the rent, uh, not not strike their rent, not give their rent to the landlord. Uh, in some cases, they were all collectively removed. In some cases, um, they weren't, and they won, and they were able to get a rent restructure. Um, and that that was also the case um, when I talked earlier about Rose Warwick. So that protest um, did um, did manifest in rent strikes across the South Side, and then also it got the mayor at the time um, of Chicago to to halt all evictions um, and to to sort of demand that landlords restructure rents so that evict- so that um, tenants could pay. And there were often these unemployed councils who were who were advocating for rent strikes. You had a lot of those, the people who were part of those were homeless and they were homeless and they were actively advocating that other people be able to main, remain in their homes. So again, you have, you, you still have that solidarity, which is very, very fascinating um, between housed and unhoused. Um, and that again, as I sort of, repeat throughout this dissertation, the the public relation of, of housing, right? It's not just about the private. Housing is is essentially a um, a public relation that we have and that we we have sort of indebted to each other to maintain um, each other's access to housing. My man left me, left me feeling bad. My man left I know I did, Mama. He's the best kind papa that I ever had. It's time for our final break. We're listening to I Ain't Given Nobody None, performed by Meg Glover. Stay with us for more with Cody St. Clair when Interchange returns. I'm going to send you a ticket, hoping you will Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We've been talking with Cody St. Clair in the episode Out in the Cold, the Political Imaginary of the Unhomed in the Great Depression. In this segment, St. Clair talks about the aesthetics of the Great Depression era and the ways that artistic forms connected to action and forms of resistance. Then St. Clair discusses the lessons we can draw from this project and how it might connect to political struggles today. I don't care how I do you so doggone hard. Your dissertation is called The Politics and the Aesthetics of uh, Underclass Resistance. And I'm wondering, uh, do you see a relationship between the political actions that you're talking about and the aesthetics and how um, either uh, Communist Party or affiliates um, and um, people who are self-publishing, poets, songwriters, how they were were talking about these experiences. What's the relationship between uh, politics and aesthetics here? Yeah, and so this was a big, a big discourse on the left in the 1930s, and it got a lot of attention, um, just about what 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 is political literature, what is revolutionary literature. Um, so there are lots of debates about this, and um, there's there's no one takeaway I think from the era other than that. Um, Pretty much every writer, every big writer in the 1930s, even the ones that we often think of as being being more liberal or more conservative, like Ernest Hemingway, for instance, that pretty much everybody understood literature as 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 playing a role in politics, as playing a role in raising of consciousness, but then also in terms of making something happen. So, mm. I think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest aesthetics of the time that I find very interesting was agitprop plays, um, agitprop theater. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And what was fascinating about a lot of these, and I talk about some of them in my final chapter, but this also could be applied to, um, I, I mean, I would even say Memphis Minnie Douglas's um, blue song that I talked about earlier in, in chapter three, um, and then I've talked a little about H.T. Sings, The Hang on Union Square. There was often this interest in, in ending a piece of work, particularly a, a play, an Adjurpa play, with a strike, with or the protest, hmm. with, with the audience. And then the, what would happen is um, there would usually be the, the actors on the stage would demand that would demand a protest or a strike and they would actually ask the audience to chant with them, to strike with them, to protest with them. And a lot of them, the idea was that you could exit the theater with, you know, behind the troupe, the acting troupe and actually go right on the street and start protesting. And so one of the most interesting examples of this is um, Langston Hughes' Scottsboro Limited. Um, it's a play that he wrote in 1931 about the, the Scottsboro Boys. It, does, it hasn't received a whole lot of attention, but the play literally ends with um, the actors going into the audience um, and, and demand, you know, chanting and the audience chanting with them. Um, and, um, and like the idea is literally, you were supposed to leave the theater with the troupe and start protesting. Um, so I think that's one of the most interesting um, one of the most interesting aesthetics in terms of um, thinking about 
the relationship between politics and aesthetics and particularly about action um, and how to to get people involved, to get people organized. But the same things could also, these things were, were true in, in the poetry at the time. Um, and there was this definitely this bridge between, between songwriting, leftist songwriting, which was usually associated with the international workers of the world, the Wobblies um, and their excellent songwriting um, versus the more, you know, the more literary poetry of the time. So one of the great quotes that um, um, that Philip Rav came up with, I've talked about him a little bit before here, um, was that um, was that the the leftist modernisms of the time will will be a merger of both the the wobbly songwriting of Joe Hill as well as the the sort of high modernism of T. S. Eliot, and they will uh-huh. the, the yeah the literary the literary proletarian modernists will bring those together and will use experimental form. Um, as a way to um, to get people to get people acting, to get people um, to to think about how how poetry can um, can change can can not just change their perspective, but also be an instigator for them to take action. That push to 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 bring different spheres of literature together, and and that being like the part of the momentum um, to spur action. Um, I think is, I've seen that a lot uh, today, um, a combination of like uh, protests at museums um, and an effort to get uh, large presses uh, talking about um, migrant workers, talking about meat packers, um, while at the same time, um, obviously all of those, many of those, uh, workers in those industries, like, are on strike themselves today. I dreamt a dream last night, I never dreamt before. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo speaks with Cody St. Clair, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of English at Indiana University, on homelessness and resistance during the Great Depression. And when I woke up this morning, my truck was setting out a I, I just want to bring us uh, to this moment because you've done uh, all of this research. And I was wondering if you could, you could reflect on, on where we're at today and tell us if there's anything that you see in your research that if there's like one lesson that we really need to focus on as we kind of prepare for this uh possibly this new cycle of movements of protests of proletarian and subproletarian um struggles uh what's a lesson that that you want to share i think one thing is and this is an assumption that I that I often make, um, but I think a lot of other people on the left feel this way, which is that um, Americans don't have the uh, the most capacious historical memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was actually even just reading something yesterday about um, how how students in the '60s and '70s didn't know anything about the Depression, that their parents had insulated it from them, um, and I think we're talking about it more, but generationally, they're you know, recessions have come, depressions have come and gone, and 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 you know we we get um, we begin to think about uneven developments. We begin to think about the contradictions of capitalism when these recessions come, um, and then and then often there'll be you know these these lulls in between where things seem fine, um, and 
you know, but at the same time, they're not really, they're not, you know, we're, we're still sort of moving towards the next recession, the next crisis. Um, so I think part of my project and the work that I do also outside the project um, is to provide this kind of historical or to help to, to, to develop this kind of historical memory. Um, and I have this, this quote um, that I, that I include at the end of my introduction um, from Sarah Ellers. Uh, she has this great book called Left of Poetry. And, and she's doing much of what, similar to what I'm doing is thinking about the relationship between, to, between poetics and leftist practice in the 1930s. Um, and she calls you know, the, the, this kind of analysis of, of the culture of the left in the 1930s to be a very urgent task. Um, and I'm quoting directly, just this urgent task and that this, we need to resist the mainstream erasure and defanging of past radicalisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's often sometimes these, these, these representations on the left of, of sort of the newness of our particular moment, that um, there's something um, exceptional about the current crisis that we're in. And in many ways it, it is, right? The COVID-19 crisis um, is something that, that we haven't experienced for, for a century right, in terms of a, a pandemic like this since the Spanish influenza. So there is something somewhat exceptional about it for the generations that are living, but also not exceptional. Um, we, we have this past that has taught us so much, and we have this, this past literature that, that really worked, that labored to bring people together in the 1930s um, to, to educate them and to provide them with different strategies for thinking about the past and thinking about how the past has produced the, the present material conditions in which they, the workers, the proletariat, the subproletariat are living and toiling, um, but also has provided them ways for thinking about how to get out of this, uh, mm. for, how to, for how to organize. And so I think what my, my dissertation really is about is, is showing the different ways in which the homeless in the 1930s organized, whether it was through party means, um, such as through the eviction protests. Um, and then in my final chapter, um, I talk about more um, also protests that were CP-led um, in relation to the Scottsboro Boys, um, but also larger scale prison insur- insurrections um, in the 1930s. So sort of larger scale protests, but also the ways in which comradeship has developed, which is really what my second and third chapters are about and how homeless um, comradeship and kinship uh, were formed in places that we often think of as being excluded from from leftist praxis and particularly leftist spaces of organizing. Um, so I'm really looking at the different ways in which um, um, forms of consciousness about homeless material conditions by the homeless and by those who weren't homeless but were um, f- analyzing homeless life, studying homeless life, engaged with homeless life. I'm really thinking about um, how kind of consciousness could lead into forms of of organizing um, that were that were both based off of shared politics, off mm-hmm. of love, off of care, um, care for each other, um, and 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 yeah, mutual caregiving or mutual aid. What we would think about today's mutual aid, um, and how those can be developed out into to larger political movements um, that then can gain, can gain larger traction, um, not necessarily in an electoral way, um, but in, in this sort of external pressure on, um, on the state, on the state to make change. And really we wouldn't have, you know, the thirties wouldn't have had the new deal if it, if it hadn't been for communist organizing in the 1930s. 
Um, even though there were problems with the New Deal that I talk about a lot a lot about in, in my dissertation, we wouldn't have had you know anything simply you know anything like housing relief, um, the Social Security acts, um, and the unemployment relief. You know, we wouldn't have had any of those things if it weren't for um, the the communist movements of the time putting pressure on the state to provide um, these forms of relief. So I think I think that's what my dissertation is really doing and showing um, how we go from the ground from the ground up. How we go from those individual um, individual or small collectives of homeless life up to these these larger movements, um, be it you know large you know smaller scale eviction protests that move out into to more um, network housing organizations or radical housing organizations. Um, how individual. Um, cases of police brutality and um, carceral brutality um, and resistance to those develop out into um, to larger um, prison insurrections that then turn into prison abolitionist, prison abolitionist movements um, from the 30s and into the 70s. So yeah, I think that's really what my dissertation is doing. And I think that's what it, it offers us, this, this more capacious history of, of leftist comradeship and organizing from the ground up through through both politics and through through literature as as a um, a technology as a as a craft that also engages with the political there ain't nothing i can do nothing i can say that's our show we'll close with taint nobody's business if i do performed by sarah martin and fats wallet thank you to cody st Clair for joining us on the air to discuss homeless resistance during the great depression I'm your host, Brady Heberlin. Today's show is produced by Bella Bravo and edited by Sean Milligan. Mixing was done by Doug Storm. Cade Young is executive producer. And this is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Ain't nobody.